Hey everybody, welcome to Relish This, the nonprofit marketing podcast. I'm your host, Stu Swineford, and I'm one of the co-founders of Relish Studio. We're a digital marketing agency committed to helping nonprofits thrive. My, my guest today is Ford Church, and he is the founder and executive director of the Cottonwood Institute. And Ford and I had a really fun conversation uh, talking about his journey into the outdoor nonprofit space. Um, he founded the uh, Institute about 17 years ago, so he's been rocking and rolling for quite some time now. And they help kids uh, put down their devices and get outdoors. So really working with schools and, and other organizations to try and get kids to really um, understand and appreciate nature before we even ask them to try and help protect it. So it's a really cool program. Um we talked a lot about how to get creative when you can't be in person, uh, stakeholders of the Institute, how to explore nature in urban environments, and reframing marketing and how we talk about marketing for nonprofits. I think you're going to love this show. Ford was a great guest. Here we go. I have Ford Church on the show today. He's the founder and executive director of the Cottonwood uh, Institute. Is that That is correct? correct. Nice. And you're coming to us from Denver, right? Yep. Well, I hope it's a nice day down there today. It's warmed up a bit up here in I'm I'm recording from Netherlands today um just to take advantage of a little bit faster speed internet than my current system at home is providing for me. So, it's a beautiful day up here. Good. Yeah, it's it's nice down here. And we've got yeah. some much needed snow for those wildfires. Whew, yeah, absolutely. The the Jamestown or I'm sorry, the left-hand canyon wildfire was probably 10 to 12 <laughs> you know, as the crow flies miles from my house, too close I had for a, comfort. a couple friends get evac from that one. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple friends evac from the tenderfoot fire and a couple from the, um, East troublesome fire that, that hopped the divide, which I was super, super surprised by, but, uh, that one yeah. started to threaten Estes. And so yeah. it's been a crazy fire season and a long fire season, uh, this year. So, um, hoping that we can continue to get some more snow and, and precipitation. They've closed the forest, which is just, you know, a drag because <laughs> that's, I, I live, the forest I actually, close. yeah, I actually live in the forest that closed. So yeah, you know, that's kind of interesting. Um, but, uh, but I think safety first at this point for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, tell us a little bit about Cottonwood and how you came into the nonprofit space and uh, <laughs> and what you guys are up to. I'm excited to learn more and share with our listeners. It's a fun journey. I uh, I'll, I'll kind of go back to to my high school days because I, I grew up in in New Orleans and I was really fortunate to be part of an outdoor program uh, with the high school that I went to. And you know, you needed a certain number of sports credits to graduate. You could do you know, PE or, uh, you know, a varsity sport, or you could do this outdoor program. And I was athletic, but not necessarily a varsity athlete and didn't really want to take PE. Um, so I got involved with the outdoor program and we would meet three days a week, go on, um, you know, outdoor trips almost every other weekend and, uh, had a little rock climbing wall on site at school and, did a lot of flat water, you know, canoeing and um, backpacking during longer breaks and trips. Got out to the Grand Canyons, the Smoky Mountains, and then during the summers we'd come out west and do some longer backpack and rock climbing trips in in Colorado, Wyoming. And so that's where I kind of really fell in love with the West. And so I knew I was looking at colleges out here. But my senior year, they got rid of the program, and our high school at the time thought it was too expensive for the number of kids that benefited. And I was crushed, and no one was fighting for the program and 
I said, look, well, I got to make this accessible to uh, other students when I, when I get older. So fast forward, I took a um, Knowles course right out of high school. Um, it was an outdoor educator course and I was too young to be on the trip. Uh, most folks were in their kind of mid to late twenties, early thirties. And I was this 18 year old, uh, squeaky kid that, um, <laughs> actually squeak, I mentioned squeak, but cause the, uh, the nickname they gave me on the trip was squeaker because I squeaked on, I was too young. So I had a petition to be on it. Um, awesome. but it was a really cool program. And, you know, we did three white, uh, three weeks of backpacking in the Absoricas in Wyoming and then uh, one week of, uh, rock climbing, but really kind of gave me, uh, a, a insight into, you know, what would an outdoor career look like and, you know, guiding and, you know, just how do you scaffold and set up, you know, lessons in the outdoors and, and all that. And how do you get creative? So it was really cool. Um, but I went to the university of Denver. Okay. Brought me out to here to Colorado and I actually ended up studying business and marketing, nothing to do with the outdoors and the environment. And I realized what I didn't want to do in life when I graduated from that program, which was sell advertising for Westward newspaper, <laughs> nothing against Westward. I love all the people that I worked with. Uh, but you know, being in ad sales when I'm trying to change the world, uh, what wasn't really adding up. So about seven or eight months into that, I, uh, kind of paused and said, well, what am I doing in this movie? <laughs> I'm not working with kids. I'm not connected to the outdoors and not changing the world. I'm like, I got to make a change. So I went in and talked to my boss and he goes for, you know, normally when people come into my office saying they no longer want to work here, it's immediately, you can, you know, pack up your stuff and, and get out. And I was like, whoa, whoa, I thought we were just spitballing here. So, um, I convinced him to give me about a month and, uh, that would give me time to help train the new person that was would take over my job and then uh, give me some time to figure out what I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to get in the outdoor industry, but that was about it. And I was on a sales call up in Boulder and I popped into the Association for Ex Experiential Education. Oh, yeah. They're a client of ours. Yeah. Association of, you know, outdoor organizations and university programs, outdoor programs. So I was like, oh, meet some people there. So I met this awesome uh, woman named Jennifer Tucker who said, Hey, uh, that's awesome. Quit your job, your sales job, you know, get into the outdoor industry, go live the dream. And she actually helped connect me with a person who was interviewing. Um, um, it was my, his name was Michael Belikov and he was running the outdoor network at the time, okay. um, which I believe got acquired by several other organizations since, but um, he actually was interested in me working, um, you know, a kind of a, a sales job for his outdoor industry publication. And I'm like, look, man, I'm really trying to get out of the sales right. uh, world. And he goes, well, you know, you should talk to this guy, um, Josh Bernstein, who runs the Boulder Outdoor Survival School. And I was like, then my ears perked up. I'm like, oh, it's survival school. That sounds cool. Um, and he was actually looking to hire a full-time person um, for kind of program operations and getting the season set up and talking to all the students that would take the survival program and um, ended up hiring me. They, they liked my business background and um, I was interested in kind of gaining more experience. And they were, you know, a medium-sized adventure travel company, mainly worked with adults, and they were doing survival programs in the deserts of Utah um, for seven to 28 days. And wow. they were a minimalist, uh, you know, kind of bare-bones survival school. So clothes on your back, uh, a knife, a wool blanket, and a poncho that you would get later in the course. So it was really reliant on, um, you know, primitive skills, uh, friction fire, natural shelters, edible and medicinal plants, 
tracking, all that kind of stuff. So that was super cool. I like had, you know, I had done a lot of outdoor stuff, but it had all been with modern gear and backpacks and sleeping bags, uh-huh. you know, and I think one of the things too, I realized at that point in my life. Um, so in my like early to mid twenties is I had never been, you know, I've been in challenging situations in the outdoors, but nothing life threatening, nothing that really pushed me, you know, too far physically or mentally. And this was a whole different ball game, you know? So the question is like, how do you show up when, you know, your food's cut off for three or four days when you have to hike from water source to water source and you're experiencing thirst, um, or dehydration and, uh, you know, that pressure that you feel when you know that if you don't get that fire by friction, uh, either you don't stay warm or you don't eat. That's a powerful motivator. But anyway, <laughs> sure I learned so much from working with them for a couple seasons. Again, I was mainly in operations, um, eventually moved into public relations with them. Um, but during the off season, once the kind of uh, the season was up and running, I got to come out and spend a lot of time in Utah where they had a field headquarters and they're actually all operating out of Utah now. Um, okay. But it was it was great because I got to get in the field. I got to get on a couple additional. I had to take a course as a student. Um, then I got to uh, you know apprentice on some trips, and then got to instruct with them my kind of last season there. So I just learned a ton, just the ins and outs and inner workings, um, not only operationally and the business side of things, but also um, in, in the field. So that was a really cool experience. But um, you know, after about the third season, uh, you know, just kind of decided to kind of do something else. I wanted to get back to working with high school students since that's when I got really impacted by this work. They mainly worked with adults and we just kind of decided to part ways. They weren't interesting, interested in, you know, making this successful for high school students. So, um, worked for a couple of environmental ed programs, trying to get my bearings on what I wanted to do next. Always had this kind of feeling that I was entrepreneurial and that I wanted to start something someday. Just didn't know what that would look like. And that's when I decided to go back to grad school. And I stumbled upon Prescott College um, because they had a distance master's program um, where you could really kind of build and tailor the degree to what you wanted to get out of it, which I thought was really appealing. Yeah, that's Um, cool. And I knew, you know, going into it that I wanted to start an outdoor program, but that's about it. And so I really dove deep into the foundations of outdoor education, environmental education, experiential education, service learning. And what came out of that was this class that ended up becoming the core program of Cottonwood Institute, which is called CAP. And CAP uh, at the time stood for uh, Community Adventure Program. Um, But we were really looking at how do you connect um, middle and high school students to nature and the outdoors before we ask them to care about it. And then how do we take that experience a step further saying, okay, yeah, we just had this cool experience on hikes and overnight camping trips and, you know, spending time outdoors, you know, what environmental issues are going on in our community, in our school, in our backyard, and what do we want to do about it? So I was really looking at kind of blending environmental education and service learning. Those are kind of the educational buzzwords, Mm -hmm. um, and, and merging those things with the outdoor skills and just like the basic skills that people need to have to, to enjoy the outdoors. So that's what kind of came out of the grad program. And I found this school in Boulder, um, which is an alternative public school called new Vista high school. And that was October of 2003. I convinced the principal at the, the time that, you know, I just had this cool idea and I just wanted to pilot it. And I thought she was going to go tell me to take a hike, but instead she's like, well, this is interesting. She's like, why don't you come over to my house and we'll sip some iced tea in my backyard and you can 
tell me more about this program. And I was like, what principal has time for that? You know, she didn't really know me from some yo-yo off the street <laughs> and she really gave me a chance. So I really appreciated her. Her name is Rona Wilinski. She's not the principal there anymore, but um, really gave me my first break into all of this. So I had a space to, you know, she basically said, if, you, if I can get 10 students to sign up, um, she would run the program. And it was basically an elective class during the school day um, uh-huh. for high school credit. And I was like, this is great. So really kind of gave me the, the freedom and flexibility to design the curriculum. And um, I mean, I had a framework for it, but I needed to really pull all the lessons and activities together in this kind of tight nine to 10 week quarter because uh, they're in a quarter system. So again, that was October, 2003. Um, you know, I think we got 15 students to sign up that first quarter wow. and we've been offering it at New Vista every year since 2003. <laughs> That's great. So, so yeah, so that was kind of the first part of it. So, um, so that was the pilot phase, right? So then that next year I was like, well, I really do think there is a business idea here. I think this could be a nonprofit, could be a for-profit. Wasn't quite sure talked to a lot of different people in the for-profit and nonprofit sectors just to get their advice and opinions. And anyone who'd have coffee with me, I was trying to set up a bunch of meetings and the takeaway from all meetings was don't start a nonprofit. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? I thought it was going to tell me to go live the dream and you know, just go for it. And they said, look, there's too many nonprofits. Uh, you know, fundraising is really challenging. Uh, you know, there are easier paths, all this stuff. And the big takeaway from all those initial meetings was collaborate, go find an existing organization where you can pilot this idea, grow it, and then decide whether or not it makes sense to spin off as, as your own organization. And so I did, I made a list of probably 10, 12, 15 organizations in Boulder at the time that I thought, you know, would add value to their programming and not compete or replace anything. And I got no's all around when I reached out to people. One, they didn't know who I was. I had no track record. Um, You know, timing wasn't right. Mission alignment was off. Budget wasn't there. I mean, there was a a million reasons for people to say no to this. And so at that point, I said, look, I'm either going to give this a shot and see if it can work or I'm going to go sell insurance or do something that I don't want to do in life. And no offense to anyone who's in insurance and, and loves that. I, you know, I appreciate that there are other people that are passionate about that. But, um, so Benny, basically I, I at that point, um, decided to incorporate, you know, filled out all the paperwork. I was actually on a hike outside of Boulder trying to figure out what to name this entity. And I took a break in this grove of cottonwood trees and I saw the leaf and I was like, you know, that's a really kind of a brandable image. I'm like, I think I could work with this. And I knew there was an Aspen Institute, but I didn't know if there was a Cottonwood Institute. So I got back to my little home office and was Googling around and Cottonwood Institute was not taken. So I jumped on it, got the website address, you know, filed the articles in corporation and then started going through the process of the 501c3 application. And everyone told me early on, they're like, Oh, it's expensive. You're gonna have to hire lawyers and CPAs and all this stuff to get it set up. And I was like, okay. Or I just kind of, you know, walked down to Boulder Public Library and I found this book called How to Apply for the 501c3 Application. <laughs> awesome. And I literally followed it step by step and submitted it. And within about a month, month and a half, we got our uh, designation, which I had heard could take up to a year. So I don't know if I lucked out, the timing is right, they slow on applications that day or whatever, um, but we got our 501c3 status. So we were a legit nonprofit. So I think that first year, it was September, so it was the end of the calendar year. I think I had raised uh, $1,200 from 
friends, family, and fools, as they say. And, <laughs> uh, I think that was enough to buy like a printer that I needed and, right. you know, apply for the 501c3 application it was like 500 bucks or something. And then, you know, then I was like up and running. So, um, at that point I got the school new Vista to start paying Cottonwood as an entity, um, to bring some kind of cash flow into the organization. I would pay myself when I ran a program, sure. but really not making much. And then putting all these other side things together, these side hustles to, you know, eat and pay rent and, you know, pay for gas and all that other stuff. Right. So, um, you know, there, there got to be this point where I was spending all this time trying to put the side projects together that I should have been, you know, spending time putting that into, you know, building the company. But, um, you know, at, at some point there was this like breaking point. I'm like, I either need to go for this or not. So mm-hmm. I decided to cut everything else off, all the side contracts and just go all in. And, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, serendipity or superstition or whatever you want to call it. But, um, I had a good friend from high school that I kept in touch with over the years. And, um, you know, he had been following what, what we were doing and would make donations here and there, nothing, you know, major or significant. And, um, he gave me a call a heads up like a couple weeks before the end of the year. And this is probably year two or three into it. And he said, look, my wife and I are going to make uh, a donation. We're trying to figure it out, but just expect something at the end of the year. So that's all he said. And I was like, all right, so no, no major expectations. Um, and at the end of the year, I, you know, kind of went to the post office and I had this this, uh, certified, you know, letter that I had to sign for. And I was like, Oh man, what is this? I'm like, am I getting audited? <laughs> like, I don't know. You know, we're still trying to figure this out. Anyway, I get back to my office and I open it up and it was from my buddy and he basically had gifted, um, shares of this stock that were worth about $40,000. Oh, wow. It's like, Whoa. I was like, that is ridiculous. I'm like, I had heard of things like that happening, but to have that happen to me, and that was like money that literally fell out of the sky and we liquidated that immediately. And that was kind of, you know, some initial funding to get going. Oh, um, about amazing. a week after that, um, I got another envelope that I had to sign for. And I'm like, what is this? Is this a joke? And I opened it again. And it was another uh, gift of stock from another officer in that same company who gifted Cottonwood another $40,000. So in two <laughs> weeks, we had $80,000 that showed up literally out of the sky. And I was like, what is the back? Like, why are y'all doing this? They're like, well, look, we were, you know, officers of this company and the company was worth nothing, but they were paying us in stock. And, uh, basically, you know, overnight it went from pennies a share to about $10 a share. Uh-huh. And I think he had over like a hundred thousand shares or something of the stock. So I was like, what? So they needed a tax write off. And, you know, his buddy was trying to make actually a donation to his church and the uh-huh. church didn't know what to do with the stock donation it took forever to get back to him. And he's like, look, we need to make this happen before the end of the year. Asked my buddy what he did. And he told me, he told him about Cottonwood and me. And he's like, that sounds great. So he didn't even call me. He didn't say, what are you going to do with this money? He just transferred it. <laughs> That's amazing. So that was crazy. So that really got us up and running. And um, that at that point, I was able to draw a small salary and then really start kind of building the company. Um, and then 2006, um, uh, I got married. My wife uh, works for Children's Hospital, and she didn't want to commute from Boulder to. They were right. moving the campus to Aurora, and right. I don't blame her. That no, drive every day would be terrible. Be, yeah. um, I know people do it. Uh, bless you all out there. But uh, you know, so we decided to move back to Denver, and you know, so when when I moved back to Denver, we I just kind of started to look at schools that where we could replicate the idea, replicate what we had done up in Boulder. 
And that's where we really kind of just start to get some legs. And so fast forward now, what, 16, 17 years later, mm-hmm. um, we still have a footprint in Boulder County. We run programs in um, Longmont, City of uh, Boulder, and Lafayette. And then also in West Denver, uh, we've done programming in Northeast Denver, and we're working in Aurora. So I always joke with folks that our uh, plan for global na- domination is very sloth-like. We have slowly migrated east <laughs> after 16, 17 years. We've made it to Aurora. That's about as far east as we've, as we've gotten. But, right. So. Well, that's great. I mean, that's such a, a, a really compelling story. I just love the idea that, that you came out of New Orleans with, <laughs> with this and... I mean, that's just fantastic that they have that kind of a program or had that kind of a program at your high school in, in, in New Orleans. I mean, that sounds amazing. Um, and, and I it's think really cool. people really take that for granted because, you know, I don't think the school at the time knew the value or impact that program was having on people. Right. And then what we all did with that experience, you know, fast forwarding several years down the road, you know, we talk about this ripple effect where, mm-hmm you know, you drop that small stone and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And like, you know, we talk about that a lot with our programs that, you know, sometimes these small experiences that you don't think are very significant at the time do end up having a lasting impact on folks. And I'm sure you have personal experiences that you remember as well from your earlier days. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I just think that that's, it's such a cool story. And I love the idea of, of introducing kids to, um, to our natural spaces and our open spaces before trying to get them to care about those spaces. And, you know, it, it, it also creates such a, a, a more impactful relationship with that space versus just coming at it from, from the, you, you know, you should care about this thing. It's right. It's, it's like you're building a relationship with, with the outdoors and, Definitely. and, and that's just a stronger foundation on which to stand. I, I just really like that idea. Um, so tell me a little bit, tell us all a little bit more about the programs that you guys offer. Are they, I mean, I, I know this year's been a, a bit of a, a different story, uh, due to the pandemic, but certainly what, what's your normal, um, approach to, to bringing kids into the outdoors and, and getting them engaged? Yeah. So normally our, in a normal world, our, our programs were like the program I was starting to describe the cap program where, Mm -hmm. you know, basically it's a class that students sign up for during the school day. Usually it fits into that enrichment period. Sometimes we've offered it as after school programs, if, if that's where the school wants us to fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's so much stuff going on after school. Initially, I didn't really want to compete with after school programs, sports, jobs when kids are in high school sure you know really thought you know if we could get in during the school day that's where we kind of have their their time and attention and especially if there's some kind of credit a tie uh, you know tied to the class then that's just an extra incentive for for students to register and get get interested and get involved um you know we found our niche with alternative public schools and charter schools um traditional we are in a few traditional uh public schools um, they're a little bit harder to work with. There's a little bit more bureaucracy and red tape and duplication on, on stuff that we have to do on the legal and risk management side to just get programs set up. But, um, you know, that's typically how we've started. But basically, you know, a, a typical class would look like, you know, the first week kind of, you know, group development, get to know you kind of activities, you know, team building, problem solving, group initiative kind of things. Um, we typically try to lead up to, um, you know, exploring outside 
um, mm-hmm. whether that's right around the school, just, you know, and it really depends on what school and, and what, what kind of background our students have. I mean, some students have tons of experience with nature and the outdoors. Others literally have none. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of meet them where they are. Um, but then we kind of lead up to a hike, an overnight camping trip or two. And then at that point, once they've had that kind of initial experience, then we start to dive into the action project. Um, so again, you know, taking that experience of being outside, thinking about nature, thinking about the environment, thinking about things that they've noticed in their own school, their own community, and then saying, okay, let's learn more about this. Let's bring in some experts. Let's watch these videos or podcasts. Let's go, you know, do a site visit when we can and learn from these experts that are already tackling these issues and then find out how we can plug in, um, you know, as a small group of middle school or high school students, what, what can you do about it? Um, and our students have taken on all kinds of cool issues. We had a group recent, recently looking at um, just energy and where their energy comes from. And, you know, we're in the technological age. Kids uh, love their devices and they sure. know that they need to power those devices. And where's their power coming from? And is it clean or is it dirty? And, you know, uh, anything, you know, things like that. But um, they basically got connected with this grant opportunity um, with this guy from Energy Labs. And I think he's in Lafayette or Louisville mm-hmm. and, uh, and the city of Lafayette also helped get this small mini grant to buy the materials to build an energy bike. And so basically it's a, it's a bike that produces electricity, electricity that you can power a light bulb, try to power your device and they can, you know, plug different things in and see how hard it is, you know, to generate the electricity that you need for certain things. And, uh, at the end of it, they had this big celebration. Um, the guy from energy lab had a few other bikes. They brought those in and they had about six or seven bikes and had an alternative energy dance party, um, where they had this kind of sound system that was powered by the bike. So when the students stopped, uh, pedaling, the music stopped, the dance party stopped, and it was just kind of a a cool, you know, application, hands-on application of, one, you know, maybe theoretical or abstract concepts on how you generate electricity to actually doing it and actually powering something that you need and want to listen to. So oh, that's, really that's cool. one example, but they've taken on other issues from, you know, zero waste events to uh, alternative transportation days. Um, there was recently a group that did a project around um, idling, car idling. So when mm-hmm. parents were coming up to pick up their kids, they're just leaving the car on. And, you know, some of these communities that we're in, you know, are really dealing with bad air pollution, dealing with asthma, you know, and, right. you know, just educating folks on why they should just turn their car off and getting them to sign a pledge to do so. And, you know, I think the important thing um, for our programs is uh, youth voice. And we really want the projects to be driven by the students. Um, we are not going to come in and say, hey, for the next nine, 10 weeks, we want you to study X, Y, and Z, you know, and do this specific project. Um, we really want to kind of build on the passion and interest of students. And it's just a more powerful project. They're more invested in it. And not all of the projects, you know, you know, are wildly successful. You know, sure. some really struggle. They, you know, took too long to choose their issue or they didn't communicate well or kind of work together as a group. Um, you know, and sometimes you had these little groups that would kind of peel off and want to do their own projects. And sometimes we'll let them, sometimes they were able to integrate, but it's just been really cool to see them, you know, succeed and or fail and learn from those experiences. And, you know, a truly project-based class, um, isn't common in a lot of public schools. And I 
can can confess me personally in my education. I don't think I got that until I was a senior in college. Um, you know, a truly project based, you know, curriculum where you're designing things. Um, so I, I think you can do that at an age appropriate level, you know, in elementary, middle school and secondary schooling and, and have it be a real powerful, meaningful experience. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I, I love it. So you've mentioned high school kids. I heard you mention junior high or, or middle school kids. Is are you doing anything with grade school as well, or is it all pretty much in those? Uh, it's upper, mainly upper middle. Yeah, mainly sixth through twelfth grade. Okay. Um, we've we've done a few programs for fourth and fifth graders, but there are other groups. And this is what I noticed when I was doing kind of a market assessment at the time. There were a lot of uh, educational opportunities, environmental educational opportunities for elementary through about fifth or sixth grade. And then right. it started to take a dive. And by high school, it fell off a cliff. Now there were external programs sure. like a Knowles or an Hour Bound that mm-hmm. you could go to. But in terms of programming that was part of the school um, or available to school um, students, then it, it really kind of dropped off. And that's gotcha. that was the niche that I had identified at the time. Gotcha. No, that's super cool. I love it. So where are you guys? I, I, I understand that you need to need to bring in schools and you need to bring in students into the fold. Um, so those are probably kind of two, two different constituents or stakeholders that you need to talk to. Mm-hmm. And then obviously donors, that's a, a third. Um, and I know you have kind of corporate partners as well. Um, are you doing any, any work bringing in volunteers or is that part of your program at all? Or what, you know, what are the other um, constituents? We are, we have worked with volunteers mainly in terms of, you know, volunteers who would, you know, join our board and advisory board, um, Mm -hmm. or help out with special events. Um, and that was always a thing I was trying to figure out because, you know, I knew that I was turning away volunteers because a lot of people do, they like, like what we do. They want to come out and volunteer in the field and come on a hike or a camping trip and working with minors and dealing with volunteers is a whole other world. And we're a smaller organization. Volunteer management is very difficult, very challenging. Um, with minors, we got to do background checks on everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then what happens if they don't show up and you're counting on them to show up? And like, so we've always hired professional instructors and teachers who, you know, have the background and skills. We pay them, you know, their employees. And um, that's how we could kind of help maintain quality. And I know there's other groups that do depend on volunteers and do a great job. Right. Um, as a smaller organization, that was just kind of a, a decision we made early on. But I, at the same time, I know that volunteers can turn into donors. Sure, and I knew yeah. that by turning away a volunteer that wants to volunteer in our programs that I'm you know, turning away a potential donor. So um, recently, I would say that we've been offering more volunteer projects for adults that want to get involved, um, mainly in partnership and collaboration with our partners at Revision and Lifespan Local and the Westwood community in Denver. Um, and revision was created in, Oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, you know, in the West Denver neighborhood because there was a food desert and they realized, Hey, you know, the, the community members don't have access to fresh food. Um, they took kind of this, uh, adopted this probatora model where they would train, uh, community members to train other community members, uh, how to grow food. And so they started with, I think four families in 2007 or so. And now they, I hear they have over eight, 900 families um, that are growing food in Westwood and it's kind of spilled over into the neighboring um, neighborhoods. Um, And then they also have this two and a half acre urban farm in the middle of the city uh, that, you know, they use to grow food. 
Um, they have farmers markets. They have like a nutrition and cooking classes. They have a commissary. They have local businesses. They're also trying to build wealth in this neighborhood so that the money stays in the neighborhood. And um, they're trying to kind of head off impacts of gentrification. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff going on. And when COVID hit, this community got hit hard, not only by residents contracting COVID, but um, just economically. Their right. jobs were cut, lost. Um, and food, just basic human needs and survival was like a big priority. So Revision and Lifespan Local teamed up and basically created this no-cost grocery program. Um, so residents can pull up on Wednesday. Um, you know, we'll help pack. They have diverted food from food rescue organizations like Food Bank of the Rockies and others. Right. And bring all this food on site at Revision. Um, volunteers are needed to pack it up each week and then they deliver about 450, 450 to 500 grocery boxes per week. That's wow. a lot. That is a lot. Like, that is a lot of food. And this is just one neighborhood, you know, you think about all the other, you know, need for food out there. It's, it's huge. It's huge. So we've been, you know, using our networks and our corporate partnerships to, you know, bring volunteer groups. One example was uh, Salesforce. Um, I had seen them on a, downtown building, uh, downtown Denver. And I knew, I knew they were California based and we had used them for, uh, you know, our CRM database. And I was like, ah, oh, pinged our board. And I was like, Hey, does anyone know anyone Salesforce? <laughs> right. Um, and they're like, actually, yeah, a guy I used to work with years ago, uh, now works there. He's like, let me ping him. So we got on the call and, um, this guy, uh, Colin Scott, you know, just loved what we did. You know, there's a lot of people out here are outdoorsy, um, mm -hmm. work for Salesforce and, He's like, yeah, let's put a volunteer project together. So they initially brought one group back in what July. And I think they've each one of those people manages their own teams. And so then I think there were at least four other groups that have brought volunteers out there. So I love that kind of that web and impact that that one project had bringing more volunteers and um, from, from a bigger company, you know, to help out. So that's right. one way we use volunteers. Um, and now oh, one other big shout out I want to give is to you would mentioned in the beginning when we jumped on the, the, uh, the podcast about, uh, the Cowood fire and we work a lot with Cowood, which is actually a, a nonprofit in uh, outside of Jamestown. And right. we've been partnering with them since Cottonwood got started for land access. And we had a great partnership where they had needs for fire mitigation or rebuilding trails or invasive plant mitigation, who knows, you know, whatever environmental projects they needed help out with. Um, we had this great relationship where they would, you know, basically let us camp out and use this as an educational, you know, lab for our program. We would give meaningful service work back to them. And it was just a great, you know, mutually beneficial partnership. And, you know, when the fire broke out, I was getting texts from a couple of people. They're like, hey, do you know what's going on in Cowood? And, you know, so it was a pretty devastating fire up there. Luckily, they didn't lose any structures, but they did lose a lot of forest on their right. property. And some had, you know, been managed properly where hopefully it will regenerate. Others got completely torched. So they will need a lot of work with uh, erosion mitigation, mm -hmm. more fire mitigation for the stuff that didn't burn. Um, and, you know, who knows what else other needs they'll have. But stay tuned because we will be putting some more volunteer projects with our students and with, you know, adult volunteers to just get up there and help out. 
Well, that that's great. I would uh, you know love for you to keep us posted on that for sure. It, you know, yeah. certainly try to get the word out uh, as any way that we can. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the the fires are going to have a, a longer term impact for sure as as soils get disrupted um, just because there's no longer vegetation, et cetera. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things that can be put together to to help out there. And so I know that people are always looking for for good projects to work on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for mentioning that. So where, where are you guys hoping to go here as we close out 2020 and move into, into the new year? What, what are your goals for the remainder of the year? Are, I'm sure. Yeah, I can give revenue... you a glimpse on how we, how we had to pivot and, you know, yeah. was, you know, we had to, because, you know, we had school programs going on in March and then all of a sudden early March, we got that word that, Hey, uh, schools are shutting that no more in-person programming. Right. They didn't cut our program, but they said, you know, can you, you know, move online? And we're like, we're trying to get kids off of screens. Right. <laughs> now we got to get them on to get them out. I'm like, this is weird. So, you know, we did our best. I think early on we used our quarantine time to really improve our curriculum. Um, we had had, you know, lesson plans and activities that have been built by a variety of different people, starting with me, but then all the people that taught after me, you know, we're adding their own spin on things, which is really cool, but it was, it was just all over the place. And so we really want to distill, like, what are the really key core activities that we do as Cottonwood and really kind of pull those into really succinct, clear lesson plans and with goals and objectives and materials and all that stuff. So that was kind of step one. And then we decided Hey, with people stuck at home, we've got to get them off these screens. We've got to get them outside. We can't always give that direct instruction. So we will look through all those lessons saying like, what, what are some lessons that either a parent could facilitate with their child or that right. they could just read and do on their own? Right. Um, so we came up with this explore outside handbook and we created these thrival kits, which are these little mini kits that had all the supplies, little materials, little things that they would need for each of those lessons and activities so they could just do it on their own, do it with a sibling or do it with their family. Um, so we put about 150 of those kits together so far and we have plans to do more um, moving into the future. And uh, we piloted this kind of first summer program where, you know, we're like, okay, school just wrapped up, but now summer camps are getting, you know, canceled. Yeah. So what could we put together that would be helpful? So we had this explorer outside uh, program that was online via zoom, but we would kind of take, you know, introduce an activity, take a break, go out, do the activity in wherever natural space that they could find, whether it was front yard, backyard, right. nearby park, then come back and report about what happened. Right. So we learned a, a couple things through that. Um, piloted that, uh, twice. Another group we work with in Longmont is called Casa de la Esperanza so that we had a, an agreement with them already in place, but we couldn't deliver that program. So we kind of adapted to offer this explore outside program. Um, we also kind of had already had an agreement with this group to do this leadership and team building program online for, I think it was about 30 plus students, um, over three days. And so we decided to figure out if we could do it virtually. So we did that and learned some things there as well. And then we were preparing for the fall and, you know, there was all this uncertainty sure. from the spring on through the summer even up till days or weeks before school started about how they were going to open up and whether yeah. they were going to be virtual or some kind of hybrid or in person or, or not. So we had to have all these scenarios ready. So that was kind of challenging, but um, all the BBSD programs started this fall online. Um, there's talks. They're still trying to figure out how to go 
a, a hybrid model, right. um, limited in person. Now we're spiking again, so that might right. get cut back. So, um, and then we did have a few new programs that we piloted. Um, we had always talked about doing an advanced cap program, for lack of a better word, that we now call the Changemaker program. Mm-hmm. So students go through that initial cap program. We've had high school students take it two, three times, um, but eventually they need other credits to graduate, so they can only right. take it for a amount of time. And each action project is different, and you have a different group of students, and the skills are different depending on the season that you take the class. But we also we always talked about having this kind of advanced model where they could go deeper and deeper into the outdoor skills, um, maybe do longer trips um, instead of weekend overnight trips. And also going deeper with what it means to be a leader, problem solver, and a change maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are in the process of piloting that program. We just picked our first cohort. We've got 10 students. They will be meeting limited in person and online. And I uh, can't wait to see the action project that they put together because they already have that baseline of their first experience that they went through. And now they get to you know, do it better, do, go deeper, right. go bigger. Right. And so I'm excited to see what comes out of that. They'll also get gear out of that program, and we're trying to get their um, uh, wilderness first aid certification so that they have kind of some of the skills that they'll need to go do this if they want to, you know, apprentice with us, become an intern, instructor with us, or get hired on by other organizations. Um, That's one project. That's um, great. It's new. And then the other is this uh, youth stewardship internship program. This is actually a program through Wildland Restoration Volunteers. Um, in Boulder, and they do a lot of stewardship projects in the outdoors. And we've partnered with them when our students would take on certain action projects, you know, whatever it may be, if they had a project going on, they could kind of plug in with them. They would provide all the supplies we needed for, you know, the, you know, the project, whether it was planting trees or who knows what. But um, so they had, um, they had the skills to do that, but they were like, how can we make this a little bit more fun and engaging? So they reached out to us to partner. And so one of our Cottonwood instructors is kind of involved with kind of co-leading this program to do some of that environmental awareness, nature awareness, games, activities, um, just so it's not the whole, the whole day is not all work. So, right. <laughs> uh, and part of that, they're also going to get a wilderness first aid certification. They're going to get, um, uh, I think it's a trail, like a trail crew certification. Okay. Um, and so again, building on those skills to, to go do this for a living, that program, they're actually getting, those students are getting paid, uh, like an okay. internship stipend to do. Right. Um, and that was funded w- with a partnership with uh, Thor nature experience in Boulder and then also great outdoors Colorado. Okay. So yeah. again, I think in the pandemic, we're trying to look at like, we're stronger when we all work together. And if we all try right. to work in isolation, we're all going to get pummeled. So <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense, but, and if, if we sit there just waiting for normal to come back, we're also going to get, uh, pummeled. So, um, I think we've been really kind of active in trying to innovate some new programs. Um, I think the other big thing we did earlier in the pandemic and over the summer was really reaching out to our community partners in Longmont, Lafayette, West Denver, Aurora, like how have your needs changed? You know, what's going on? How can we be helpful? Um, and we knew that, you know, they're all overwhelmed and in crisis mode too. Um, but we, we did hear back from a lot of folks and from the student side, um, students are feeling isolated and alone. They're spending a ton of time indoors. They're mm-hmm. mainly stuck on screens all day mm-hmm. even throughout the summer. And, you know, they are craving community. And I think that's the big need and impact that we can offer is that 
you know, we have these fun and engaging programs, whether it's online or in person or hybrid, we can build a cool community. We can get to know each other better. We can support each other and we can learn these skills and do something to make a positive difference in the world. I think, you know, they're craving, you know, purpose. Like what is the purpose through all this? You know, how do we come out of this stronger and, and we have this outlet to be able to do that. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing a lot of really great things. I, I love the idea of creating physical, uh, tangible uh, materials that kids can take and, and go explore because, you know, even in urban settings, we are, we all, all really do live in nature. It may be a, a weird yep. concrete nature, but, um, but <laughs> there's, nature you know, everywhere. there's nature everywhere. I took a class with Brigitte Mars oh, many, many years ago that was all about um, finding medicinals and edibles in an urban environment. And we, you know, and granted we were in Boulder, which has a lot more green space than the many cities, but, you know, we walked around and found all sorts of stuff just, you know, in ditches and growing over there. And in that field that, you know, it's like mint and there's an apple tree and there's, you know, this medicinal herb. And, and so, you know, and then also getting down into that micro level. So I don't know what was in your kits, but, but I know that my nephew at one point was really into bugs. And, Mm -hmm. and so he, I think, I, I don't remember if we gave it to him or if, if, uh, if he just had it, but, but he had a little bug kit that he would go out and had a magnifying glass. And so he could go and you know find an ant and take a, take a really up close look at, 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 at an ant that was, you know, and he lives in Aurora, Illinois. So, you know, a little, little more urban than, than perhaps many of us are able to do, but there's, there's nature there and there's yeah. opportunity and it does get, get the kids away from the screens a little bit. And I think that, yeah. that that's, you know, that's, that's a good thing for all of us to do for sure. It is. And I mean, I, I have two younger kids who are in, in that tween age and, you know, they, they love camping and they love the outdoors, but they love their screens too. And it's that balance and, you know, they can easily get sucked in if we're not, you know, create different fun things for them to do. Yeah, absolutely. A buddy and I were on a, on a ride earlier this summer and we were up, um, Oh, what's the name of it? It's, it's up, up in the Indian peaks and we were at a trailhead and we were just hanging out, just taking a little break. And this kid came up and asked if there was a place where he could charge his cell phone. And it was just (laughs) like, dude, what are you doing? (laughs) You're like in the middle of nature and just, just enjoy it. Stop playing games. But you know, maybe he was trying to take pictures of, uh, you know, of bugs and stuff. I don't know, but, but it was just a funny, funny, you know, sort of sad thing. But, uh, but certainly I think, I think encouraging kids to, to step away and, and just experience nature is, is such a, a valuable thing that you guys are bringing to the, to the table. You mentioned that you had, had learned some lessons in terms of particularly, I think you were talking in regard to, to trying to move to some of this more virtual training. Mm-hmm. What, what were some of those lessons for, for other nonprofits that are out there having this, you know, going through that same, those same challenges? Yeah. I mean, it was a big shift for our instructors who, you know, th- there's a reason they're not, they don't have a job that is indoors in front of a computer screen all day. You know, they, they crave that interaction with students and they crave, you know, being outdoors. And so to have them just kind of shift on a very short notice within a week, they had shifted mm-hmm. all their programs online it was challenging and, you know, new platforms to learn. We had just gotten set up on zoom and then Boulder Valley school district was like, Oh no, that platform is banned. You can only do, you know, Google meets and whatever school right. for they're using. And we're like, what, what are those programs? They're like, so scrambling. <laughs> I mean, I think 
And that's, that's a hard thing that I think we've all been noticing, especially now. It's like, we've been eight months into this. We've been in crisis mode. We've been in like overdrive. Everyone has been, and it's taken a toll. I think people are stressed. Uh, they're anxious. They're, you know, they haven't just taken a moment to stop and breathe. And, um, you know, I think that's something that we're recognizing on our team with our staff and instructors and myself personally, you know, it's like, we've got to find those times to be able to like, just stop and decompress and, and stop creating new things. <laughs> and just like, let's pause for a moment. Let's ride out what we have on our plate right now. And not, you know, I think in survival mode, you're like, Oh, I got to take any and all opportunities or I'm just going to start, sure. you know? And yeah. it's like, well, I think we're okay right now. We need to like, just focus on our ourselves and our team and, and our students. So, um, I think, I think that's kind of a big lesson learned. Well, that's, that's super powerful. I think, um, I, I think a lot of people have just been in that, you know, panic slash create slash, you know, if I take a minute off, I'm, I'm going to, you know, lose an opportunity and, right. um, you know, and it's something that we talk about. It, it's a little, little like the idea of, of taking money out of the hands of, of your stakeholders from, from a nonprofit standpoint. It's like, well, every dollar needs to, needs to go toward this thing. And, and instead it's like, well, you know, not every minute needs to go toward, toward this, this mission or this, this deal. We can take a, a breath and, and make sure that we have taken care of ourselves and are, and, you know, because if, if, if we can't work or can't produce or can't do the thing that we are trying to do for people, then, then it's, you know, it's just not going to get done. And so, yeah. you know, there's a lot of self-care component there as well. Definitely. For sure. So what's on tap for, uh, for 2021? Are you guys tracking toward your goals to, to tee up that experience? Our, our fiscal well, just or? ended, um, in September, September 30. And so October one, we just started a new fiscal year. So we just, okay. uh, we, we just got to say goodbye to 2020, um, you know, fiscally. <laughs> right, right. And now we're looking ahead to 2021. And, you know, I think there still is a lot of uncertainty, you know, I think, mm -hmm. you know, questions, you know, around funding, you know, indicate what kind of programming we can offer. So, right you know, certain families and foundations have already stepped up and recommitted, you know, what they had done or even more in some cases. Um, others we know are going to drop off. And, you know, I think this is, uh, just highlighted a lot of inequity in our economy, right. uh, because we've got, you know, some people like the communities in Westwood that we're working with, um, that are absolutely getting pummeled. And then there's other groups that are like, what pandemic I, I'm busier than ever. I've got more business or more money than I know what to do with. So it's just this crazy, you know, divide that mm -hmm. has been highlighted. And, um, you know, I, I think we're, you know, still hustling. We're still trying to reach out to our, you know, corporate sponsors saying, you know, Hey, what are you thinking about for next year? Are you thinking about cutting back or adding, or are you doing in-personal ev uh, events? Are you sponsoring virtual events only? And just to try to get a gauge of where they are, because that's going to dictate what we put together. Um, from the fundraising event standpoint, we put two main fundraising events together. We do more, but two main events that generate uh, a good chunk of our operating budget. And right. we had to pivot one on a short notice, all, all virtual um, and then we created our special events coordinator, Vicki Wisenhunt was awesome, helped develop a whole new move-a-thon that we had never done before 
which is kind of like an old school walkathon, but um, you could pick any kind of movement. You could you could hike, you could walk, you could bike, you could dance. You know, jog dancing it's a movement. Um, okay. You know, you could pick your movement and uh, and and help raise money and create your own little fundraising page. So that was just a different way that we had to try things like the right. the normal in person events that we had done um, couldn't couldn't happen. So we had to get creative. So I think you know of all the bad stuff coming out of this pandemic, the one good thing is that it forced us to kind of get off our butt and do things a little bit differently than we have in the past or totally reinvent ourselves, <laughs> right? our right. programs, our fundraising arm, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm the eternal optimist. I, I do have a worrier side of me, but I like worrying, not warrior, but worrying. right. Right. <laughs> I got it. Um, and, uh, but I ultimately am an optimist and I just have this mentality that it all works out in the end and right. there might be some, kicks to the gut and then stumbles along the way. But, um, I do feel like when you, you know, are just dedicated to what you're doing, you had a clear, you know, vision of what you're up to, uh, you know, you attract the resources that you need and right. you attract the partnerships and you attract, uh, whatever you need to survive our, our board kind of jokes that I'm like the Jerry Seinfeld of fundraising that, you know, I'll email them and be like, Oh, we just lost this grant for 5,000, you know, kind of bummed about it. And then, you know, like a day or two later, this $10,000 grant shows up. Uh -huh. Like you lose five and get 10. Like, how do you do that? I'm like, I don't know, man. I just trust the universe. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I, I may have mentioned this book on the show before, but it's a, a book by Michael Singer called the, the surrender experiment. And in that book, he talks about how, and this is just his own personal experience and, and, you know, certainly could be a little cherry picked, but he also, he just talks about how, you know, every time he needed something, it would just show up. And he, if he needed like a person to do this, someone would call him that day and, and be like, Oh, I do this. Do you need any help? It's like, okay. And then if he needed, you know, $63,000 to, to buy some piece of property that he wanted to tie into this compound that he was you know creating <laughs> a $63,000 check just showed up out of the blue. And like, exactly the same amount of money that he was looking for kind of, kind of coincidental stuff. And, and I think that the idea there is, is, you know, you just put yourself out there and you, and you expect good things to happen and you, you know, pay attention and you, and you, you know, you, you create this openness and this, this ability to accept and people, people. Well, even respond, us right? uh, meeting and connecting here. I mean, we, one of our needs is, you know, sharing our story and having more people hear about us and know what we're up to. We've been around for 16 years. And someone told me that if you say you're the best kept secret in the nonprofit world, you are doing a terrible job with branding and marketing. <laughs> the best kept secret. What? That doesn't. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, you know. that's not great branding for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's true. And I think that, you know, one thing I heard you say is just, just going out and asking. And I think that that's a thing that the people, um, have a hard time with a lot of, a lot of the yeah. time is just asking for the thing that you want and, and making sure that you're going out to, to donors and sponsors and, and partners and just saying, Hey, this is what we'd like. And, and how are you going to be able to, to help support that effort this year? Yeah. Um, one of the things we hear, we have heard a lot, particularly this year during, during all of this crisis is that, that smaller uh, outdoor industry sponsors in certain sectors are, are they're having a little bit of a hard time, but a lot of the big guys like North face and, and, you know, people like that are, are crushing it. Um, you know, this, the Scarpas and the, and you know, just the, those big players yeah. are actually having, you know, 
a really good years. And so going out to those guys and, and saying, Hey, can you help out a little bit? Um, is, is really effective, particularly, particularly if you can just, you know, get, get past the, the ego thing that keeps us yeah. from asking for help. And, yep. and so, um, you know, I think there is a lot of opportunity out there and I love how passionate you are and, and how, uh, positive you are about, about the future and, and everything that you're doing. Um, so where can people find you? Um, definitely on our website, cottonwoodinstitute.org. Um, we're also pretty active on social media. We've got a Facebook page, Instagram page, um, not as active on Twitter. I still can't figure Twitter out, but, uh, <laughs> well, and, I think uh, you need to go where your, where your audience is going to be right. <laughs> and, and Twitter may not, may not be the right, the right place for you. I and don't, then LinkedIn, really we, we have a good presence on LinkedIn as well. Well, that's great. That's great. So I like to, to end all of our, all of our shows with, uh, an action ask. One of the things that I get really tired of is, is a whole bunch of talk and, and no action. And right. so one of the things that I, I really like to do is ask, ask our guests or ask my guests what, if there was one, one action that you'd like the listeners to take after listening to the, to the show, what, what would that be? Well, I mean, of course we all need donations. So, you know, I, the first ask would be go to cottonwoodinstitute.org slash donate. And that'll get you to our donation page. And there's a lot of different ways to give, um, not just monetarily, but um, uh, the other thing is I literally just wrote today um, our state of the union blog. So we are less than um, a week away from the presidential election and in 2020, depending on when this podcast airs and uh, you know, just, it was a great time and it was not a political post. Um, but it was a time for me to reflect on this, you know, last eight months of craziness and, you know, how kind of what we talked about in this conversation, but you know, how, how we pivoted and where are we going. And, um, in that post, there's three actions that people can take. Um, so I'd encourage you to go to cottonwoodinstitute.org slash blog, and that'll get you our state of the union, uh, for 2020. Well, I appreciate that. And this will air after the election. So, um, all right. <laughs> if, knowing that, um, is there anything else you would, uh, you'd like for people to, to, to do? We're, we're a big supporter of voting in, in every time you have the opportunity. So I'm sure that that, uh, that blog post will be evergreen, but for is sure. there anything else I, I think, that you'd like? Yeah, the big, the big things coming up for our end of the year. Um, we're big, um, we've been a part of Colorado gives day for mm -hmm. it's for, from its inception. And, uh, it's a, a big giving kind of time period if folks are not familiar with it, but, um, basically, uh, it's a way for people to support nonprofits like Cottonwood, um, from November 1st through uh, December 8th. And uh, they can go online to cottonwoodinstitute.org slash donate. That'll get you a link to our Colorado Gives page. Um, we have a family, actually three families that have come together to offer a $20,000 match for Colorado Gives Day. And uh, in addition, if you donate for Colorado Gives Day, there's that uh, million dollar incentive match that we get um, just for being part of it. But, uh, that, that, that's a huge way to help because as I said, the, the money that we raise from now through December 31st dictates what programming we can offer for our students, uh, for 2021. And that's, that's the big plug right now. 
That's awesome. I know Giving Tuesday is in there too. So I oh, yeah. would encourage people all to- All of the Giving Days. Yeah, all the Giving Days are all lined up. So um, I think that's great. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. And it was it was good chatting pleasure. with you. Yeah, I'm really glad we got connected. And um, you know, definitely we'll spread the word about the podcast when it gets when it gets launched. Yeah, I'll let you know when it, when it drops. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Another episode of Relish to This, the nonprofit marketing podcast. If you want to continue the conversation and see how we can unearth some gold for your organization, head over to relishstudio.com slash podcast to sign up to be a guest on the show. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Relish This.